So for me, it wasn't much. For the people who saw it, they saw a man die. They believed that I was going to be dead. They even called the park service on the sat phone, and they said I was unresponsive, and they basically is a code word for dead. And the park service says, well, we don't have to scramble a helicopter. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off topic. Today I talk with author and journalist Tim Cahill, who reinvented the very notion of literary adventure writing when he co-founded Outside Magazine in 1977. Now, it's been said that starting a podcast can serve as a pretext to approach your heroes in life, and Tim Cahill has been a literary role model for me ever since I first read his books and stories when I was a teenager in the 1980s. His work was a huge influence on my career as a travel writer. I've actually known him as a friend and colleague since the mid-2000s when we both taught classes at the Book Passage Travel Writers Conference in California. He's a great down-to-earth guy with a keen, self-deprecating sense of humor. He's also incredibly active for his age. He's in his mid-70s, and the story that frames our interview, his account of literally dying and coming back to life after an accident in the Grand Canyon, actually happened when he was in his early 70s. Tim started out as a journalist for Rolling Stone, where he interviewed people like Clint Eastwood and Stanley Kubrick and O.J. Simpson, and he wrote the most iconic account of the Jonestown Massacre in 1978. I've linked that story in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. He also wrote a best-selling true crime book about the serial killer John Wayne Gacy. But his true calling in life has come in the form of having crazy, death-defying outdoor adventures in remote corners of the world and bringing back fascinating stories. So here he is, recounting many of those tales from his home base near the Yellowstone River in western Montana. Tim Cahill talking to me from uh, Livingston, Montana. Um... And not to uh, bury the lead, uh, recently you were dead for five to ten minutes. Is that correct? Uh, yeah. Uh, nobody really knows because nobody took a stopwatch to it. But uh, I was uh, rafting the Grand Canyon and uh, Lava Falls, which is pretty much universally considered the nastiest and most dangerous rapid in the river. Some rogue bit of hydraulics tossed me out at the top, and uh, and I got to swim the entire falls and uh well let's let's leave it hanging there because um one thing i like about your writing is that you're good at bringing us into the story and leaving us hanging a little bit and actually i'm going to read a couple of my favorite uh, beginnings of yours actually i'll start with sort of an adventure one it's in mongolia you probably know uh, it's from past the butterworms and it says there were a dozen of us riding the immense central asian grassland on sturdy mongolian horses when I glanced back for a view of the glacier and the sacred mountain we had just visited, I saw two tiny specks inching down the steep windswept hillside moving in our direction. I turned on my horse and glassed the hill with a little four-power Russian monocle. The pursuing riders were coming towards us at a stiff trot. They were at least two miles back and about a thousand feet above us. Each man held something in his right hand, and I could plainly see the glint of metal. They carrying? One of the Americans asked. Yeah, I said, both of them. So, uh, uh, I think over the course of over the course of the story, the, the the reader is left wondering what exactly that glint of metal is. Um, That's eight thousand words that thing was left hanging. Right. Well, uh, in the, in the interest of making uh, this Tim Cahill interview sort of a Tim Cahill story, we'll we'll let our listeners 
wonder about the exact nature of your brief death uh, while we talk big picture stories. But uh, what is your approach, just out of curiosity, out of writerly curiosity, what's your approach in hooking a reader in a story and in, in, in getting a reader engaged? Well, there's several ways. Um, one, of course, is uh, in media res, I mean, in the in the middle of the story. So obviously, the one you just read, you don't hear me make plans to go to Mongolia and to get on a plane and to get off the plane and to, and to secure the horses. I mean, it's in the middle of the story. And so then you can go back and fill in. There's other ways to... Uh, my late friend Bill Cardozo, the inventor of the term gonzo journalism, used to call himself a uh, an amber journalist. He wasn't quite a yellow journalist. He was he was a little, little more polished than that. And uh, he once did a story about the uh, a massacre of Chinese gangs uh, in San Francisco. Happened in a restaurant. And uh, he went in and his story began one sentence, one sentence lead. It said, there was blood everywhere, period. Well, it's cheap. It's sensational, but I dare you not to read the next sentence. Uh, there's the amber journalism way. There's the media res way. There's uh, there's a there's a way I call the reverse parallelogram. I call it the reverse parallelogram because nobody knows what it means. Um, you start off almost asking the the uh, it's quite the opposite of uh, daily journalism where you tell you know everything that's important at the top. This, you're just trying to hook the reader with a series of questions and perhaps promises. So I'll give you a reverse parallelogram lead. Um, I, I was, uh, when I was a young journalist at Rolling Stone, I was uh, asked to write a story about a, uh, a man who uh, uh, manufactured stereo components, speakers, and uh, Colonel Paul Clips uh, passed away now. But I thought, you know, if I say, reader, I'm going to tell you about a guy that makes speakers. I didn't know that that would hold them there. It turned out that I had a couple of these kinds of speakers in my house. They were big. But the, uh, the lead went, how I came into possession of the two great beasts is an overlong and convoluted story. Suffice it to say, they take up about a square yard piece in my living room, and visitors stare into their flat black maws with something approaching apprehension. Love it. Love it. I, I remember also you wrote a story about climbing a cliff once, and you started out by talking about how you're in a diaper, that you were... Uh... <laughs> Hanging off a cliff in a diaper. Another another introduction that I really like, and I don't want to make this whole thing about introductions, but um, an introduction of I like. This is uh, from an essay from a book called Hold the Enlightenment, which is the uh, the lead essay, Hold the Enlightenment. It says, I am not a yoga kind of guy. Yoga people are sensitive, aware, largely sober, slender, double-jointed, humorless vegans who are concerned uh, with their own spiritual wel welfare and don't hesitate to tell you about it. They are spiritually intense and consequently enormously boring in the manner of folks who are, in their own self-absorption, feel you ought to be as alerted as to the quantity and texture of their last bowel movement. Or so I used to think. <laughs> yeah, that, 
that they, they actually printed that in yoga journal. Right. And that, that was 15 years ago. I think, I think that that, that stereotype in the social media age where people actually, I don't think people any, any, but nobody actually posts Instagram photos of their last bowel movement, but sort of the uh, performative spirituality thing has only intensified since you wrote that. Yes. Yep, yep. You, you got to do the warrior pose on uh, rocks at the beach in Hawaii with the waves crashing around you. Well, over the course of our conversation, I want to sort of get to the idea of how performing a journey has changed a bit since your career started or even since my career started. But since you mentioned a Rolling Stone article that you wrote before, I want to talk about the very early parts of your career. You're sort of you're sort of the, the, the godfather of literary outdoor writing, um, but you actually started out at Rolling Stone, as you said, and I was looking at your Rolling Stone archive and you interviewed Clint Eastwood. You interviewed Stanley Kubrick, Jeff Bridges. You did a story about pot legalization, about skateboarding. Uh, you wrote. You interviewed Jack Nicholson around the time of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and O.J. Simpson. Sort of this happy-go-lucky yep. uh, O.J. Simpson. Wow, look at look at how multidisciplinary he is. Type story. I I, I can't say I was prescient on the O.J. Uh, interview though. Right. We got along pretty well. So do you have any of, of those celebrity, you know, I, I think of you so solidly as a, as a travel writer and an outdoor writer to the point that you were very influential on my career. But um, you, you interviewed celebrities for a while. You, you talked about issues that are now commonplace, like pot legalization. So what are, what are some of your more memorable experiences as a straight-up Rolling Stone journalist? Well, I went down to uh, Jonestown in Guyana just after that happened, and uh, so kind of walking around among 900 dead bodies in the jungle was something you would never forget. Um, the, the ones that I'm thinking about from Rolling Stone are actually kind of travel stories. They weren't meant to be. Uh, yeah, this one was. It was a story about the wholesale slaughter of uh, turtles in, the, uh, in Mexico, uh, southwestern Mexico. Uh, Olive Ridley turtles, and it was uh, passionate. And uh, I, I, I hope, I hope that it was part of the catalyst of the Mexican government and conservation organizations coming together to actually save these turtles. They come up onto the beach in thousands upon thousands. It's called an arribazón, and uh, and they're doing it now again. October nights, a full moon, uh, just the weight of all that biology around you. Yeah, that was a memorable story. For a while, I did rock and roll things. That was early on. After two years of doing rock and roll, I was able to say, I don't want to write rock and roll anymore. Well, what do you want to write? Politics? No, I was terrible at politics. Sometime around 1975 or 76, Rolling Stone wanted to do an outdoor issue to put together a magazine that we eventually called Outside. But uh, uh, the idea was to see if it kind of worked, and it, it worked in the in the context of an insert to Rolling Stone in those days. I I will go on and tell you how Outside started if you want, but it's. Uh, Sure. Well, just just to interject quickly, uh, you know, I, I mentioned people like Clint Eastwood and, and Stanley Kubrick, but it sounds like the most memorable things at Rolling Stone weren't sitting in a room and talking to famous people, but 
but going yeah. out and, 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 and being in the world in, in, in strange contexts. And in fact, that Jonestown Massacre story, was it's one of the more famous pieces of long-form reportage from the 70s. It still turns up sometimes. I saw a review of, uh, of that story. Um, someone wrote as a, a master's degree a thesis for rhetoric. And uh, it was it was wonderful to see all the rhetorical devices I used without because I didn't know that I used those devices. They all have Greek names. Well, that's flattering that that someone uh, that without knowing it, somebody applied Greek uh, titles to uh, to the, a story that you wrote uh, many, many years ago. Right. Uh, one other thing that I noticed about your early career, and again, I, I do want to hear about uh, how Outside Magazine got started, and I do want to hear about your experience of being dead. Um, but early on, you wrote a story about a serial killer, uh, and it was a bestseller. And true crime is is very is a very commercial genre. And so, tell me a little bit about that experience and why you shifted. You can even segue into the Outside Magazine part. Why you why you you chose you wrote a very popular book about a serial murderer, but you decided that you didn't want to be a true crime guy. Tell us about that a little bit. Well, I think I was a little ahead of the serial killer curve, but uh, uh, I was curious about the phenomenon. And so I began researching. I was a journalist. I had ins here and there. I got calls and I got a call that I could get interviews with this guy. And uh, so I... Which guy in particular? Gacy. Okay. John Wayne Gacy, the killer. The clown uh, killer. The clown killer. So it was three years of tracking down his lies and living in the sewer of that man's mind. The, uh, as a matter of fact, I recently got a, um, an invitation from uh, the local high school to come in and talk about my murder book. And I said, really, it's, it's not appropriate for a classroom, the twisted sexual nature of the crimes has to be addressed, and I don't want to do it in front of a high school class. Um, and after three years of doing the research on the book, I uh, had completely exhausted my curiosity on uh, serial killers and living in the darkness of this. I don't think it was psychologically good for me. And, and every new whack job that came down the pike every Jeffrey Dahmer they would call me up and say Tim you should do this and I'd say I don't want to go back into that dark space psychologically unhealthy so you made a you made a conscious decision instead of going into dark spaces into going into the great outdoors so to speak so talk about this turning point in your in your professional life well while I was doing the Gacy book um, quite often I would uh, run out of money because it took me three years to write the damn thing. And I would go do an outside story. And the stories outside were clean. They were, oh, I, well, you might be dirty, but it was it was clean. It was physically healthy. I felt good doing it. And, you know, I, as, as the magazine outside started to develop, I realized that that was, as opposed to interviewing movie stars or going into the very dark spaces like Jonestown or Gacy. Um, I preferred outdoor kinds of things. And since I'm a lazy journalist, I preferred outdoor adventure because, hey, when your life's at stake, 
it's easy to do research. Well, that's that's another good uh, teaser um, for for the hook of this interview because for years and years you put your life at stake, uh, and then then it came into a weird culmination in the Grand Canyon. Now. Um, you're sort of a pioneer in the sense of creating an outdoor magazine that was also literary. And I know a lot of these stories, but, but for, the, for the purposes of our readers, I'm curious to know about the state of outdoor journalism and actually the state of travel writing in the mid-1970s. Because I think you and Paul Theroux and some other people sort of helped shift travel writing and outdoor writing from a pulpier genre to a more literary one. So, so what was in the mid-70s when, when you had the opportunity to create Outside Magazine what was outdoor writing and travel writing like? There wasn't much in the way of uh, travel writing. It was all service, uh, where to go, what hotel to stay in, um, and there wasn't much. But if if you're talking about outdoor adventure, now, now the magazines that come to mind, the top tier were Saga, Argosy, and then something called Man's Adventure, Adventure for Man and man's testicle, and they were all about, you know, inoffensive animals, bloodthirsty penguins uh, pecking you to death at the North Pole. Yeah, I, I, I know, I know. <laughs> so, or, 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 you know, battling the bloodthirsty coyotes of Montana, which is, they're right out there. So, <laughs> they don't, uh, Was there literally not, a magazine called Man's Testicle? No, I... Okay, <laughs> okay. <laughs> I've heard you make reference to that before, so I thought, wow, maybe there really was one. Okay, go go ahead. Now I know that your early books, you, I mean, you have, uh, I have a stack of books here. One's called "Peck to Death by Ducks." Another one is called "A Wolverine Is Eating My Leg." So obviously, you you very playfully alluded to these uh, as your career started and continued. Well, yes, um, you have to remember that uh, Outside was started under the Rolling Stone umbrella, and there was uh, two of us. Uh, two others and myself who were involved in uh, in coming up with the, what the concept would be. That was Michael Rogers and Harriet Fear. And I said we could do an outdoor adventure story. Uh, but what outside, let's boil it down to its essence. What outside was meant to be was, were stories about the out of doors that were literate. That's all. That's it. It sounds like a slam dunk now. Back in the day, it was, uh, you know, the pundits told us that literate people don't go outdoors. They're all knuckle-dragger, mouth-breathers. And then I suggested to Michael and Harriet, hey, let's have an outdoor adventure story. And outdoor adventure was the stuff of man's testicle. It was a sub-literary genre. So when I began writing these stories... They were literate. They were some of the most popular stories in the magazine. And when I put them together in a uh, in an anthology, um, I just thought I'd poke my friends Michael and Harriet by giving it a title like one of those pulp magazines, Man's Adventurers, something. Well, I think that also betrays your sensibility because you, um, I think with a sense of intentionality, but also because you aren't sort of this swarthy, bare-chested uh, guy chasing after vixens and wrestling jaguars in the jungle. Uh, a lot of the fun of your stories is that they're self-deprecating. They're sort of everyman stories. They're, they're the guy who isn't an expert mountain climber who's hanging out with someone who is. I mean, we found out 
early on at Outside, we would find, say, the world's best ice climber or someone up there and, and say, write a story for us about ice climbing. Well, that person knows so much about ice climbing and he or she is addressing his or her peers, um, stuff that an ordinary reader really didn't understand. It, it worked much better if you take someone like me with the world's best ice climber and have them show me what to do. And the unspoken thing behind all this was, uh, hey, if I die, you look bad. So they, they, they took care of me uh, on these kinds of uh, deals. Um, but I could write from a total beginner's uh, point of view, and then I could take you right to the top because I can watch what the world's best is doing. And that was kind of some of the early stuff that I did uh, at Outside. I want to get back to that notion that if I die, you look bad, bad type stuff. The idea of sort of feeling out risk and fear in the in in the company of people who who do it for a living. But real quick, have you heard of an essay called by Philip Rov called "Pale Face versus Redskin"? No. Okay, it's a, it was in the Kenyon Review years and years ago, but it talks about two traditions in American literature, which is the pale face uh, tradition, which is sort of Emily Dickinson. Um, Henry James type writing, and then the Redskin tradition, which is the swarthier uh, Hemingway, Mark Twain uh, type, Walt Whitman type writing. Uh, and so it sounds like, for whatever historical reasons, by the mid-1970s when you were founding Outside Magazine, that the literary aspect of the Redskin tradition had sort of trickled away, uh, and, there, and the expectations were, were completely pale face uh, for, for outdoor writing. Yeah, yeah. Not only <laughs> they were uh, whatever was, if you, we use the word redskin, whatever was redskin was fictional and made up by people who uh, believed there were penguins at the North Pole and, and that the penguins were bloodthirsty. Uh, <laughs> so there was no, there was no um, actual literate writing about the real out of doors. Um, and then there might be some there 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 were some kind of uh, books about people who climb mountains and everything, but it was a lot of gratuitous chest beating. Uh, basically, the subtext of those books would be: I just climbed this mountain, and you can't. You're a jerk. <laughs> it's interesting. I, I that's a curious history. Um... And maybe neither of us have this, the scholarly background to, to figure out why that was the case at the time. And, of course, I was a little kid, so by the time I started reading outdoor writing, I was reading Tim Cahill. So uh, thank you for, for not having to, to – to, to, to not leaving with the childhood of reading about stories about men fighting penguins at the North Pole, which, as any fact checker would say, is, is sort of a, an absurd um, possibility. Um, on that token, even though uh, fighting penguins at the North Pole was never a, a vocational challenge for you, um, you do write throughout your career. You um, uh, you talk about risk. You talk about fear. In, in fact, I have some quotes written down. You say research is easier when your life's at stake. Um, uh, and 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 like one way that you've talked about going through risk and writing about it is an intimation of mortality alternatively perceived. And since since one reason why we had to bump this interview is that you had a malaria relapse, 
Uh, yeah. <laughs> and I hope you're feeling better. But talk a I little bit. Okay, good, good. I, I, I have, I've had malaria a couple times myself, but I've been fortunate not to have a relapse just yet. Um, fingers crossed. Um, but talk a little bit about it, you know, especially since we're, we're, we're slowly moving towards your death experience. Uh, slowly talk about, talk a little bit about your experiences with pushing the envelope and, and uh, putting yourself in physical and psychic risk. I never really thought I was pushing the envelope. I, I mean, if, if I was rappelling deep into a cave, I'd, I'd worked on my rappelling technique. I'd done smaller caves. So if I'm rappelling 440 feet like Pigeon Mountain Cave, I'm not, I'm not afraid because I've done it before. I think fear comes out of ignorance. Uh, you don't know how to do this um, and you're terrified. I know how to do this. I, so, okay, I can do it in a cave. Let's sling a rope off of El Capitan in Yosemite and we'll climb that rope using the caving gear and then we'll rappel. That's a half a mile rappel. It's pretty good rappel. In fact, I think it's the second longest one ever done. You know, you say I occasionally make fun of myself for self-deprecating. Uh, yeah, I recall that one. That that uh, that climb up the rope in Yosemite. It, you know, you start from the base of the cliff, and it's just about half a mile. We know because we had a rope. We could measure the rope, uh, and we climbed up, and there were jolly 70 foot swings in the wind and uh, uh, the photographer Nick Nichols was ahead of me on the rope but he uh, he had decided that uh, he was going to hydrate up a lot he drank about a gallon of water before we started because he had to carry his cameras and he didn't want to carry as much water but of course he went first because he wanted to shoot down at my terrified face. And otherwise, he'd be shooting up at my butt against the sky, which is not that good a photo. But when you drink a gallon of water before you get up there, you you know, you get about a quarter of the way up there. And he says, Tim, I'm sorry. I got to, <laughs> I really got to pee. <laughs> and I'm thinking, oh, geez, here I am. All right, I'm pretty good with these ropes, this rope kind of thing now. I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. I got an idea. So I climb up to him, unhook the top carabiner and hook it above him, and then clip it in. And then I hold him around the chest, and we're slowly spinning around. Have you ever been to Yosemite and seen those guys climbing the thing? There's people that there's a road very close and there's people with binoculars there. So I'm just wondering <laughs> as I'm holding him, this spinning yellow fountain going on. I'm wondering if we we're going to be arrested for some kind of perversion up at the top. You, have you thought about like fear as a, or fear or risk as a concept? I mean, have you, have you thought about management of, of fear and risk in, in, in the process of actually being in this, these situations? Yeah. Now, now this is the early part of my career. I was really fascinated with risk. Um, you know, as as time went on and I got older and older, it seemed, uh, you know, something that was risky for me to do at age 28, um, 56, maybe it's too risky. You know, it's a, so, you know, I'm backing off, but backed off of things. Uh, but 
yeah, risk was, um, you know, did things like skydiving and ice climbing and, uh, and uh, deep caving and uh, those things. And frankly, I kind of liked the fear and I examined the fear. And as I was saying earlier, the more you know about what you're doing, the less of fear you have. By, by that kind of fear, I mean panicked fear. I mean, uh, 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 you know, I don't know what to do. I'm going to scream. I'm going to run off uh, drooling and gibbering. Uh, you know what to do. It's and you do it in a way that is um, the ins, it's it's creatural. You're not thinking in the ordinary brooding sense of the, the the term. You are just doing this thing and doing it the best you can. It's it's kind of like the flow. How old are you now? I am 74. 74. Now I think there's an incident that happened in your 60s in British Columbia that I think involves a different sort of fear. When you were hiking, I forget the exact details of why you were hiking or exactly where you were hiking, but you fell off a cliff. Uh, yeah. And you were, and it was one of those situations where because you had fallen off a cliff and sort of injured yourself, maybe you were in a situation where you were suddenly had to come to terms with a different kind of fear because, because um, you didn't have a rope, so to speak, literally or metaphorically. So uh, can you talk a little bit about that experience and, and what that was like? And, and how old were you in your 60s when that happened? Hallie, I can't remember. Okay. Uh, I was in my late 50s or early 60s, probably. Um, yeah, we were on the South Island of um, the Queen Charlotte Islands, kind of uh, uh, Canada's answer to the Galapagos. There's all kinds of species there that don't exist anywhere else. Uh, and we got there by kayak. And the kayaking was spectacular. There were orcas and stellar sea lions and uh, and nobody. And, and my assignment was to look at some, you know, there's orchids. There's it's kind of bare there that they don't see anywhere else. And, and I said, I really have to walk through this. It's, it's a rainforest, temperate zone rainforest. I really have to walk through. Nobody wanted to come with me. So, of course, Listen, I used to be on search and rescue. I know. Don't go out by yourself. And that's what I did. <laughs> and as I was uh, uh, coming back towards camp, the South Island is a long, slender island going north to south. And there's a high ridge. And uh, coming down from this high ridge are any number of drainages. So if I, I'm coming down sideways across the thing, I've got to go down the drainage back up. And sometimes the the drop into the drainage was pretty deep. So I had to go almost to the top and then come back down. And then at this one particular place, I said to myself, you know what? That's only like a 15-foot cliff. And it was covered with moss. This must be the moss capital of the world. And I can climb that. And I, had a, I, I was so confident of the climb that I had a walking stick in my hand. You took the hand and plunged through the uh, the moss to get a grab hold on the rock. And then you kicked in with your foot to find another hold. Well, right up at the top, I got my hands on what felt like a big, strong root from a tree. I couldn't tell because it was under the thing. So when I got up there, I put my foot on that 
and there was a tree at the top that was within my reach and I kind of pushed off the root and it broke in half. And as I was reaching for the tree, my momentum carried me around so that I was falling face first. Um, I don't know if you could see it. That's that's the place where I landed. So we're on Skype and, and Tim is showing me sort of a scar on, on right on the top of his forehead. Right there. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. well, you know how they... You know how those things bleed, head wounds. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, but I'm, I'm lying there and I'm saying to myself, uh, you know how you when you take a fall, you say, you just kind of lie there and you say, oh, how bad is this? I, I didn't even, I said, I can't, I can't allow myself to think about that. I got to get up. I took off a bandana that I usually wore and tied it off, you know, got the dirt stuff out of the wound and tied it off. And then I knew my kayaking friends would be searching for me because I'd be late. And so I had to get down to the beach and I got down to the beach. And then I thought, uh, you, you know, I couldn't climb because my back, I'd really hurt my back really badly. But I thought I got down to the beach and then I realized I had to, to get to camp. I had to climb over these points with it that had a lot of rocks in them. So I had to go up over the top, and I couldn't do that with my back. But I could swim, although I had irrigation boots on, which would fill up and that. And if I left the boots behind, uh, I wouldn't be able to walk. <laughs> so believe it or not, with irrigation boots in hand, I swam out beyond the breakers, around the point, and came in. I did that about three times uh, that was in Canada, just about where it borders with Alaska. And uh, then it was starting to get dark. And uh, I got a uh, gathered some sticks together and uh, had some waterproof matches with me and, uh, and lit a fire just as my kayaking buddies uh, came up and I was rescued on that. But, you know, I thought, holy cow, I'm lying here with a head wound with a really, really bad back. And what am I wearing? I'm wearing a, a green, black uh, uh, irrigation boots and a green rain suit in a, in a rainforest. I mean, and I was completely off trail. I would never be found. So, but once again, those things all, you know, the fact that I would never be found, the fact that I was really screwed, the fact that uh, uh, none of that really went through my mind as uh, I was uh, making my way back to shore. I was doing what I had to do and not thinking about it. And I really didn't think about it very much until uh, uh, we got back to camp and uh, the guide was uh, my friend Grant Thompson was really happy to break out. Uh, his morphine <laughs> so I got a shot to cure the pain because at that time that that was the time I could begin to think about everything and happily I thought yeah, that morphine was really good uh, I was uh, the next day I was medevaced out of there is that probably the the the, the closest or the the closest you've come to actually having a, a bad fallout uh, apart from your Grand Canyon experience you know, there's a lot of them, and it's, um, I mean, I can't tell you how many times, especially 
in the post-Soviet era, you could go into these countries that you could never get into before. But they always wondered what you were doing going to remote places and and then making little maps for yourself. And uh, so you spend a lot of time with your hands in the air trying to explain in a language you can't speak that you're out there uh, enjoying the, the beauty of their uh, their mountains or their desert or something like that. So, you know, how many times, you know, that, that, that you had your hands in the air, you know, how close was the trigger pull? I don't know, you know, so... Yeah, there's there's lots of them, um, and, and I'm glad that uh, I had the uh, the Grand Canyon experience because now I could easily answer those questions. How close did you come? <laughs> well, I think it might be time to tell the Grand Canyon story, Tim. So, so, so going back to our in media res situation at the beginning of the interview, you were on what seemed like a fairly typical Grand Canyon boating tour. And you Absolutely. fell out of the boat, and and so so tell us this story. Tell us about your uh, this experience that was that went beyond a flirt with death and actually technically involved a wee bit of death itself. Just a wee bit. Um, yeah. Well, I went out of the uh, the boat. It was it was in December, um, so it was kind of cold, and everybody was wearing dry suits. I thought. This is Lava Falls. Now, anybody who looks at Lava Falls, you scout it before you go. You look at it. You, look, it's, it's, you couldn't swim it. It's, it. It would be impossible to swim. You'd just never even consider that. However, I said to myself, you know, I'm not going to wear my dry suit because if I go over, perhaps I can direct myself. It turned out that uh, I, won't wear the, I won't wear the dry suit because... Uh, too bulky, but I can in the in just a thin layer of a rain suit. So I went over right at the top, and I started uh, going underwater. And actually, now look, I mean, this sounds like uh, you know gratuitous chest beating, but I was not afraid. I have been in rapids before many times. I've always come out of it, so I had time to look around. And I remember being under the water and there was kind of like a, a quiet pool above me and I could look right through to the sky, blue Arizona sky. And then that thing, that, that round pool started to fall apart on the downward side and, and everything around me looked like shards of glass exploding. It was kind of pretty, but I needed a breath. I was thinking, whoa, this is this is getting too long underwater here. And then it was as if I fell off some kind of cliff and I got a good breath and I noticed where I was. There's a big rock called the big black rock to the right. And there's another big hydraulic hole to the left and you have to thread the needle between them. And I kind of said, I'm in the right place. Now I didn't direct myself there. And I should tell you, my confidence in my swimming is that I was uh, I was a swimmer at the University of Wisconsin. I was uh, I was pretty good at one time. So I'm I'm not afraid of water. It's a natural element for me. And I got through the thing, and one of my teammates in a kayak came, Brian Aho. Thank you, Brian. He raced across the rapid. I mean, power paddling. I grabbed the back of the kayak kick like hell, and we got to the other side of the river where there was a there was one of the rafts waiting. 
and I started to pull myself up on the raft. Uh, there, it turns out I didn't know this. That was the raft that went over. There was nobody in it. And I was having a hard time getting up. And all of a sudden, I looked downstream, and the eddy was pushing in another boat really fast. And it was coming. And these boats are typically 18 feet long. They weigh about 2,000 pounds. You don't want to get crushed between them. So I saw that this was going to happen, and I ducked under. But in my exhaustion, I swam the wrong damn way. I swam against the eddy, the way I'd been going downstream. But the eddy was, these these Grand Canyon eddies are the strength of the, their own river. And so I was kind of stuck under the boat and couldn't get under there. And I felt myself take a breath of water. And... Uh, I said, well, I've never done that before. It's not too bad. And uh, all of a sudden I had to take another breath and it was bad. And I realized I am not going to make it out from under these rafts. I should just go for the shore. So I made a left-hand turn, went to the shore. The people in the boat that came to rescue me found me, pulled me up in the boat. We rowed across the river to... uh, Tequila Beach, where people usually stop to celebrate running Lapa Falls. And I got out of the boat. I walked four or five, yeah, 15, 20 steps, sat on a bench of sand, and a guy came over to offer me a beer, and I took it. And apparently at that time, I fell over and died. All I know is what other people told me, because I was out at this time. The, uh, they said that I turned blue and then gray, and they lost my pulse entirely. Meanwhile, um, we were lucky to have a wilderness EMT, uh, Jason Kleiberg, and uh, a a registered nurse, who uh, uh, Steve Schmitz, and they began working on me right away. They cut off the the personal flotation device in my rain gear and began doing CPR. I remember one of the guys told me uh, he'd been a wrestler in college. And he said, geez, I didn't know you could uh, push a guy's sternum three quarters of the way to his his backbone. And the other guy, Brian Ajo, who was also a wrestler, said, well, there's there's no resistance. And then they both got quiet for a while because no resistance means... um, so my pulse had stopped. Now, nobody took a stopwatch to this. Nobody knows. My pulse was stopped. Some people said, well, from the time I fell over and my pulse was stopped, they'd run to the boats, get their emergency kits, get the stuff cut off of me, start going. Some people said three minutes, four minutes. Others said 10 you know, nobody was timing it. Nobody took any pictures either because they're, they're not professional photographers. <laughs> they're they're regular, ordinary, sensitive human beings. <laughs> so, so they never took any pictures until uh, somewhere, either three minutes or 10 minutes later, I could feel my chest and my ribs breaking and it hurt. So when I woke up, whoever was doing that, I, I took a swing at it. Now, I didn't have I didn't have any good leverage from flat on my back, so it wasn't much of a swing. 
But then I started wrestling with these guys, and they're all holding me down. And what, what, what is this? And uh, so they told me that they told me what happened, but I didn't believe them. They they'd gotten a hold of the National Park Service. They sent a uh, rescue helicopter in. Uh, a copter landed. The paramedic took a look at me. Said to the, my crew, "You guys uh, saved a life today," which was kind of news to me. Now look, everybody asked, "Well, when you were gone, did you see that bright light?" No, I, no pearly gates, uh, no beloved pets bounding across the rainbow bridge, uh, no guy in a red suit with horns, um, nothing. It was uh, it was just like being knocked out. Um, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't black in there. It wasn't gray. It was just nothing. And then I was back. And this, this whole thing, I maybe seem to be making light of it, but for the other people... They're the people that saw a guy die. Most of them are aware of the fact that CPR brings back somebody in only 10% of the cases. CPR is done waiting for the defibrillation paddles. Of course, we had none because of Jason's stellar work. They, they did. Of course, he broke every one of my ribs. Literally? No, they're, they're bruised. They weren't broken, but... Uh, it was so painful that for about a week, well, and, and then I'd swallowed all that water. So, as you know, with broken ribs or bruised ribs, uh, there's nothing they can do. You just have to let it get better. Well, it turns out when you swallow a lot of river water, there's nothing you can do. They, you just have to cough it up. You, know, you cough up a bunch of phlegm. Well, coughing with severely bruised ribs is not a picnic. And so when I'd get into a coughing fit, it would literally just drop me to my knees. I thought of, uh, I thought of Justin, uh, his name is Justin, not Jason, Justin. Uh, and I thought, I hope I have a chance to save his life someday. I, I'd, I'd break every one of his ribs and a couple of his fingers too. <laughs> just for good measure. <laughs> well, that's my best story. Is this something? Well, actually, I have, I have many questions. One of which is, what kind of beer was it that you drank? Uh, Pabst. <laughs> I just wonder if you could be a spokesperson now for for, for Pabst. Well, I didn't. Get, I didn't get it open. <laughs> this is, and I remember the guy Roy Crummins gave me the beer, and uh, and then I passed out. That's the last thing I remember. Of course, I mean, don't get don't get me wrong. Nobody nobody was drinking before we took that rapid we we'd been terrified of the damn thing all night long listening to it you know and then we get out and uh, get on it and, and everybody was if we were high on anything it was adrenaline and uh, but now now all of the at lava falls all of the bad nasty rapids are behind you and it's time for a beer so actually i went and did the trip two years later with the same group of people. No kidding! Wow. Yeah. yeah. So I so I said to uh, to Roy Crimmins, who gave me the beer, I said, Roy, do not hand me a beer before we safely get through Lava Falls. Then hand me the beer. 
Like the last time, last time somebody handed you a Pabst, you literally died. So right. <laughs> well, no, the last time Roy had. That's true. That's true. So it was Roy, not the, not the beer. <laughs> I, I like I like this recurring theme that you got medevaced in in British Columbia, but you you went back to the river. You got medevaced. You died and were medevaced out of the canyon, and and two years later you were back in the canyon. So, uh, the incident itself happened in 2014. Is that correct? Yeah. And then you were back in 2016. Correct. Okay. And is it some is it something you think about uh, very often, or is it just dying was just some random thing that happened uh, several years ago? Well, that's what I'm saying. It to me, it was to me it was like, you know, I played football in the old days in, in high school, and you'd get knocked out occasionally, and then you'd wake up, and there's a circle of faces looking down at you. And the coach would say, you just got your bell wrong, boy, walk it off. And that's what dying felt like to me. You know, we didn't have concussion protocols back then. Uh, so for me, it wasn't much. For the people who saw it, they saw a man die. They believed that I was going to be dead. They even called the park service on the sat phone, and they said I was unresponsive, and they, which basically is a code word for dead. And the park service says, well, we don't have to scramble a helicopter. When I came back, they were on the phone and they scrambled the helicopter right away. These, these people saw life and death right there on the football field or on, on, on Tequila Beach, whereas I felt like I was on the football field and just got my bell rung. So, yeah, it wasn't a big thing for me. It was a big thing for them. So what role does this, uh, you, you wrote a, a fantastic Outside Magazine uh, article about the experience. And so so what role does it play in your life? Is it just a nice source of, of, of jokes and mirth? Or is it, uh, did it lend you any philosophical ex perspective? Or is it literally just another another experience to, in, in a line of experiences stretching from football to uh, to your various outdoor adventures over the years? You, you know, I, I wish that I was somehow that had changed me in some way that, that I decided that, uh, having died, I will now devote my life to, uh, uh, racial equality or curing cancer or feeding the hungry, but that didn't happen. And all I can say about this is that the river was deep. The guy in it was shallow. Uh, but you lived and now you're, now you're 74 and, um, <laughs> You're you're still based in Montana, and I know that one thing when we were talking about these interviews, you are, I mean, you've always been a walker, but it sounds like you're you're, you're very intentional as a walker now, as a guy who is who, who has cheated death more than once. One of one of the ways you embrace life and embrace your physical being is walking. So so talk a little bit about that, about uh, the role that walking plays in your life now. Well, I I like to walk, and there. Are with age, my balance has gone all to hell. I'm not going to be climbing things. Uh, there's a lot of things that I won't do, but I think walking is the essential thing. I mean, what terrifies us as we get older is the loss of mobility. And I just like to walk. And I, you know, I've got my, I've got my dog, my Brittany Spaniel, and uh, I like watching him run. We go up to the trail. I mean, five minutes out of town, there's great trails. You know, we're in the mountains here. 
great trails everywhere. Dog comes with me, and I'm I'm watching a great athlete uh, as he is, and uh, and so I I like to walk, and I like to just I like to get to that period in walking where it's not how much farther is it? It's just automatic pilot, and that takes an hour or two sometimes to get there. And I don't do that every day, but uh, you know I want to. Uh, so I've had this about ten years now I've had this ambition see the thing about the thing about working out for me is that it's easier for me to do it when I have a goal I can't just work out because it's good for me it's got I got to say I'm going to do this in preparation for the goal coming up and my goal is to climb to the top of the mountain that I can see from my door here and uh, get back down to my door uh, in the same 24-hour period. So I have to walk a couple of miles. I mean, the river is just a couple blocks down, the Yellowstone River. But I'm going to cross at a couple miles down, swim the river, walk up the mountain. It'll be, we're at 4,005. The mountain is 9,007. So it's about 5,000 feet of elevation gain, um, and then come back down. I, I've done every little part of it, and I calculate it's going to be 18 hours. But uh, I was going to try to do it this year, but I realized, no, I'm not quite there yet. So i got to be there this year um, because it's probably this year or never. Are you going to do it solo? Or are you going to take your dog or any companions? No, I wouldn't take my dog. That would be that'd be cruel to the dog, I think. No, nobody wants to do it with me. I mean, I'll tell people where I am. They give them my complete route. It, it's it's not dangerous in that kind of way. It's not dangerous that there's pretty much trails all the way. So you would have to work really hard to get lost. One interesting thing about this is um, you know, just the idea of aging, uh, physically aging, psychically aging. How... You, you mentioned that you don't have the same kinds of adventures you did as a younger man. How, how has travel and adventure changed for you over the years? How, how has it, have you kept it, besides occasionally dying, how have you kept it fresh and exciting? Um, well, you know what I'm going to do now? And this, this, this doesn't fit along with the rest of the interview, but I, I think I've deserved, uh, I've, you know, I, I've gone to, uh, remote places, West Papua, where I got the uh, the malaria, uh, remote places that you have to put a pack on and walk for a long time and eat from a camp stove. Hey, I'm going to go to Paris and go to three or four three-star Michelin restaurants. That's my, uh, that's the way travel is going to change for me now. I, I, I am going to get uh, a little bit of luxury travel under my belt. It, it feels like you've earned it, Tim. I mean, most people most people don't spend like uh, forty to fifty years risking their lives before they enjoy the bonbons in Paris. So uh, I think if anybody has earned the right to have a little bit less intense travels, it's you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for the permission. Right, right, right. And I and I think you should indulge. Maybe to celebrate the, this eighteen hour hike. What is that like? Thirty miles or something. Um, to celebrate, you can go to Paris. Yeah. 
a, a few other a few other wrap up questions while I have you here. And I, and I and I'm I'm looking. Uh, you know, people listening to this won't be able to see this. They're just listening. But you're sitting in your office uh, full of books, and I know that behind you are stacks of papers that uh, represent future projects. So I'm curious about that. But before you tell me about your future projects, I'm curious about a few things. Is it true that there was a, a, a fake Tim Cahill going around uh, New Orleans picking up women pretending to be you? Is this true? Uh, no, he was in Albuquerque. But, okay. Uh, okay. But there was actually. There was actually two or three of them. Uh, at the time that I worked for Rolling Stone and was doing music, there were several people that uh, claimed to be me trying to get backstage. I, I got a letter once from one guy saying, thank you for all your kind advice to me at the Top Hat Bar in Albuquerque. Because of you, I went back to New York and have started trying to write my play again. And I thought, well, I've never been to the Top Hat Bar in Albuquerque. So I wrote this guy back and I said, yeah, 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 yeah. It wasn't me, but I'm happy that, that <laughs> you're rewriting your play. What did this guy look like? Oh, he wore a corduroy sport coat and he was about five, six and he had an earring. I said, that's not me. It's as if uh, your reputation preceded you so much that you had outsourced versions of yourself dispensing life advice over beers. Oh, yeah, well, dispensing life advice and apparently cutting a swath through the women of Albuquerque. I mean, he's getting laid using my name. I can't get laid using my <laughs> well, I guess we'll have to get you a corduroy jacket and an earring, Tim. Right. <laughs> uh, random question. Do you still hold the record uh, from Road Fever for driving from the tip of South America to the tip of North America? I think I do. I think I do. I've, 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 I've tried to look it up, but it's uh, it doesn't seem to be available in the book of records uh, record but there's nobody else holds that record either so as far as i know i do um and and people could easily break it these days because a lot of the roads we took are you know were mud bogs and now they're paved that's true i was on the carretera austral in chile uh several years ago and that road has been completed a lot of the pan-american highway has been paved and so uh, deviate with rolf potts listeners take you can take that as a challenge tim cahill set the guinness book of world's records Back in the 90s, wasn't it? Uh, I wrote a book about it called Road Fever. And that that world record is is ripe for the plucking. So 87 it was. 1987. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, let's talk. Speaking of Road Fever, which is one of uh, several classic books you read, what's what's next? What are these stacks of paper I see behind you? What what are your writing projects coming up? Um, there's a there's a project. It's a vague project about uh, our predecessor as, as homo sapiens here on earth homo erectus and uh, i've been to uh, places in uh, in kenya uh, looking at uh, lake turkana boy uh, i've been to the place in georgia where they found all kinds of uh, homo erectus uh, homo erectus was around for almost two million years pretty successful hominid as compared to us, we've been here for 200,000 years. It's it's kind of travel and it's kind of science and it's kind of thinking about what it all means. But let's get this straight. I'm kind of semi-retired. There's, there's um, God bless the publications and the publishers uh, uh, of 15 or 20 years ago. I made, um, I made a living. I made a good living, a very good living. Nowadays, it's hard for me to 
get my motor running for the kind of money people want to pay. So these are just projects that I do on my own or I sometimes look, I had to do the uh, the outside piece because it was uh, it was the 40th anniversary of outside. I have a kind of parental um, interest in the magazine uh, because it was uh, I was one of the founding editors and and so I was going to write about the founding of the magazine and like you, they said, oh, yeah, and tell us your death story, too. So so the founding of the magazine is all tied up with dying on the river. <laughs> full, full circle. I, you know, I think at, at the end of the day, uh, whatever book projects you have going, you, you do owe it to yourself to sit in a five-star or a three-star Michelin restaurant in Paris with a stack of the books you've already written and, and sign them for all co- comers having cheated death and, and founded a major American magazine. So uh, uh, Tim Cahill, thanks for talking with us today and, and good luck with your semi-retirement. Thanks, Ralph. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including Tim's outside article about dying in the Grand Canyon, as well as all of his books, can be found at the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Justin Glow. Music is by Cedar Van Tassel. Jan Futterman helps me with the show notes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts. Deviate with Rolf Potts.